Welcome to the Unfair Advantage podcast, where we will explore the unique experiences, skills, and abilities high performers bring to bear in their field. In each episode, we will unpack the guest's expertise and insights to help all of us develop our own unfair advantage. Welcome back to the Unfair Advantage podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. Lisa, how are you? I'm great, Alex. How are you doing? I'm good. I am pumped to talk to you. This is a bit of a dream come true for me to interview you in this format. I've had the the privilege of knowing you for about a year now, but excited to share your work with a larger audience. So to kick us off, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about you and what you do and the research that you've done around the brain, and we'll, we'll start there. Sure. Well, I'm a neuroscientist and I'm a psychologist. I was originally trained as a clinical psychologist and then Uh, throughout my career, I retrained probably three times. It depends on how you count. But, um, but I trained as a as a physiologist and also as a cognitive uh, scientist, and then as a neuroscientist. And mainly, what was spurring me on was trying to understand how the brain, the human brain in conversation with the body create episodes of emotion. Um, anger, sadness, fear, and so on, you know, because there, there was, there is this idea that's been around for a really long time that the human brain comes pre-wired with these ancient circuits for emotions and instincts, you know, like you've got this lurking inner beast uh, or reptile brain um, that has to be controlled by, you know, your rational brain and that all brain function is a a constant battle between your inner beast and your more mature rational self. And that turns out to be a a fiction. Um, And, but what it means is that there are a lot of really open questions about how brains work and how they control the body and how the mind emerges from that control. And so I, you know, have been hot on the trail of that question for a number of years. Um, which brings us to what we're going to talk about today, I think. Yes, absolutely. There's more to unpack here. So, you know, you you talked about, you introduced us to the reptile brain. And one of, I think the lines that resonated most for me from the books that you've written was around the idea that like, you can't separate out emotion from decision-making. There's this sort of myth, I think, as you describe it, that we could totally override our emotion with with rational thinking. And so I'd love to kind of start there um, because I think that's a myth that persists in sports. Yeah, so it's a very old and interesting story about uh, why it is that we have this persistent myth that we have instincts and emotions that um, you know, lurk inside the brain in these so-called ancient parts of our brain. Um, and that the mind is really this battleground between you know, emotion on the one hand and rationality on the other hand. And that when rationality wins, you know, you're mature and uh, healthy. And when emotionality wins, you are either, um, immature or immoral because you didn't uh, try hard enough or ill, mentally ill, because you couldn't control, you know, your, your instincts and urges and, and emotions and so on. And it certainly feels that way to us um, subjectively, 
but that's not how brains evolve. That's not how they're structured. You don't, the only animal on this planet that has a lizard brain is a lizard. And uh, there is no inner lizard, you know, in a human brain. The human brain, actually all brains on this planet evolved, we think, um, to regulate the body, actually. So um, as bodies got larger and more complicated, brains emerged on the scene and also got larger and more complicated. Um, and, you know, right now, as you and I are talking to each other, there's a whole drama going on inside each of us. And in fact, for our listeners right now, they're, you know, their experience might be that they're quietly listening to what we're talking about, but inside each of us is this raging drama uh, that we are largely unaware of. And that's the brain's most important job. And the, as the brain is regulating the body, the body is sending sensory signals back to the brain to kind of inform the brain about the state of the body. So the state of glucose metabolism, the state of hydration, the state of, you know, um, salt and how much salt and potassium and, you know, that are needed for electrical signaling in muscles and in neurons and, and so on. And the brain is modeling those signals from the body. Um, it's modeling the state of the body all the time. Like we're not aware of it, but, and, that, and the name for that is interoception. That's the scientific name. Um, uh, so interoception in the scientific literature is not necessarily awareness of your body. It's the brain's modeling of the body for the purposes of regulating the body. The interesting thing is that you know, your brain is wired to make that modeling aware, make, to make itself aware of that modeling as simple feelings, feeling pleasant, feeling unpleasant, feeling calm, feeling worked up um, or agitated, you know, feeling comfortable, feeling uncomfortable. These are feelings that are not emotions. They're, they're simple feelings that come from the brain's regulation of the body. And they're always with us 24 seven because the brain's always regulating the body. The body's always sending sense data back to the brain and the brain's always, you know, conjuring these simple feelings. So um, whether you're in an emotional moment or not, so, um, and whether you're aware of the feelings or not. So you, you, you never have a moment where you're, where feeling is absent from your consciousness, these are features of consciousness, which means that it's just not possible for rationality to conquer feelings or, or to be the abs, you know, the absent of feelings. Um, and in fact, rationality is better understood, I think, in terms of the brain's main job, which is to model the body efficiently in an energetically efficient way. So I'm wondering if you could maybe explain to us what that modeling process looks like. How does the brain do what it does? Well, I can do that for you, Alex, at a very, you know, general level, right? So I can totally fine. describe it in a very, um, in a very si simplistic way, in part because, you know, I don't have a, um, a computer where I can you know, walk you through, uh, you know, the more technical aspects, but also because a lot of the technical aspects are just not known yet. But I, I think the first and most important thing um, to understand, and it's, you know, it's not, 
it's something I think that surprises the average everyday person, but probably athletes are not surprised and coaches are not going to be surprised what, what I'm about to say, um, which is that our experience is that we see things in the world, we hear things in the world, and then we react, right? So we see something and then we process it and then we react in some way, like we have some change in heart rate or we have some, you know, movement change, like we prepare to run away or to, you know, um, swing a bat or, you know, a puck, you know, with your hockey stick or whatever. But actually that's not what is happening when you look under the hood. So if you, look at the structure of the brain, if you look at the energetic requirements of the brain, what you see is an architecture that's designed for predicting, not for reacting. Um, that is, your brain's most important job really is to anticipate the needs of the body and attempt to meet those needs before they arise or just as they arise, but certainly not after they arise. And so, you know, an example um, that, um, that I sometimes use is, you know, standing up. So if your brain is gonna stand itself up, stand up the body, it starts to, um, your blood pressure starts to rise as you stand, not after you stand, um, because if, oxygen and, and glucose and so on can't get to, if your blood can't get to your brain, you faint. And that's a metabolically costly uh, consequence. So there's a preemptive increase in blood pressure as your brain is preparing the body to stand. And we can talk about you know, most sports in terms of predictive processing. In fact, the coordination of prediction across brains of players um, that's really how your brain is controlling your body predictively. Um, we're not aware of those predictions and um, it's not our subjective experience of how, you know, we are navigating ourselves around in the world, but that actually is one important aspect of, um, of the brain's uh, control of the body, it's, which is referred to as allostasis. That was an excellent high level explanation. We'll take it. So You've said a ton of things that I think we could we could follow along with, but I think I want to start with where you just ended, which was this idea of kind of coordination between players in a game. I'm wondering if you could just expand on that a little bit, like talk to us about how this predictive mechanism might be influencing that experience of these athletes. Sure. So I'll just say as a disclaimer, I, I am I am not an expert at any sport. And my eye-hand coordinations totally suck. And, uh, you know, so I'm just, you know, just so we're clear, you know, I'm a scientist. I know a lot of scientists know a lot about, some scientists know a lot about sports, that's not me. However, I will say that, you know, games like baseball and, I mean, hockey, I always sort of was interested in, you know, because I grew up, I mean, I was born in Toronto. I grew up Canadian. You sort of have to, you know, you've got to, you know, yeah, you have to support your. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. But, but, but I think these games took on basketball, took on a really uh, new and different interest for me when I realized the, what must be happening 
um, during play. So the one that I that I stumbled on originally that I thought was super fascinating was baseball. Um, and that is, you know, you imagine, right, you have a pitcher. So in professional baseball, you have a pitcher and then, you know, you've got the, um, the batter. The batter steps up to the mound. And what you're assuming is happening is that the batter waits for the pitcher to release the ball and then prepares the swing and swings at the ball. But if a batter actually did that, the batter would always miss the ball because there's literally not enough time for the batter to wait to see the ball and then prepare the motor response and then execute the motor response. It's actually physically impossible. And that really what's happening is that the batter is, the batter's brain is making predictions. It's using his experience, and I say his because we're talking about, you know, most professionals, uh, baseball players are male, not all of them, of course, but, but most, um, uh, you know, his, his brain is using um, all of the information from past experiences that are similar to the present. So what was his experience with this picture? What was his experience in this stadium? What was his experience um, with, um, you know, at this temperature, with this wind um, condition, when his body was, you know, given how much he slept and the amount of glucose that's available circulating and, right? So the brain is basically using this multimodal ensemble of signals um, that are similar to past events. And the brain is using the past to make predictions about um, what that um, pitcher is going to do. And when I say make predictions, I mean the batter's brain is literally preparing. The batter's brain is not thinking, oh, gee, I wonder what that pitcher is going to do. The batter's brain is literally preparing the, the motor plan to lift the bat and prepare to swing the bat. In, in, at a particular angle, particular velocity, and so on and so forth. Um, so, and begins the swing before he sees where the ball is. And, and that's really, so it's a battle of wits, right? Between uh, a pitcher and a batter. Um, this sort of coordinated battle of wits. In, on a, you know, in a team sport where like basketball, say, or football or hockey, where, you know, you're passing um, an object back and forth, um, what your brain is doing is making predictions about what other players are going to do. Some of those other players are the players on your own team. So when a coach calls a play or when a, a player calls a play, um, that's really helping the players to synchronize their predictions. And that kind of synchrony is the basis of all human communication, it turns out, right? So if I say to you, Alex, I had pizza for dinner last night, which I did in fact have pizza for dinner last night, um, I don't have to list for you the 25 features of pizza, right? I can just say one word, which, which allows your brain to, to compute, to you know, conjure 25 or 30 features and it's a very efficient way for, 
for us to have synchrony in the signals between our two brains, right? So, um, you know, you might not be right about every feature uh, that's in my brain that, you know, goes with pizza, right? So, I mean, if you were from Chicago, for example, you, you would assume that the pizza was deep dish. And we could debate about whether that's really the best pizza or not. I don't want to alienate anybody. So I'm not going to say my own preferences, but I had thin crust pizza last night, but you know, so there might not, might not, every feature might not be the same in our two brains. Right. But, but um, enough that we can communicate. And, um, and if we know each other really well, we might not even have to speak words. We might just use gestures like the raise of an eye or the turn of a head or in, um, in sports, you know, the flick of a finger or the, you know, positioning of a body. So what I want to be really clear about here is, you know, I'm not saying that body movements are a language that people are reading. That's a, a really unfortunate um, misnomer in our culture. Body movements, whether it's in your face or, or your corporeal body are not, the movements aren't a language to be read. Your brain is predicting, it's guessing what those movements mean in this context. But if there's synchrony between the two of you, then you're communicating well. And that's really what is happening, uh, we think, you know, in team, in team sports where, where, there's, where everything just looks really, really fluid. That's fascinating. And so when you're talking about the battle of wits between the pitcher and the batter, you were mentioning these different factors that the batter might be sort of modeling as they're they're at bat whether when experience with the past in the past with this pitcher and it makes me think about the implications for learning and skill acquisition and so i'm wondering what your work means for how people actually learn and develop new skills because i think what happens a lot in sports is you know, people just go out there and they do the same thing every day. And, and maybe there's some, some benefit to that. But my guess is from listening to all the different factors you're pulling in, there's probably some benefit from variation and some other circumstances and constraints. And so it would be fascinating to, to hear about that. Yeah. So I think, you know, uh, the, the first thing um, to realize, and this is, again, this is something I think that's been known for a long time, right? Is that but I don't think people really understood why this is the case. Um, and that is, so for, for example, why is interval training so helpful? Like why, why does that work? Well, the reason why interval training works as well as it does is that if you perform the same action over and over and over again, you're, you're gonna get more and more and more efficient at performing it. And more and more and more routinized at performing it, it will become more and more and more like a habit. And that's a really good thing for, for some actions, but it's a really bad thing for other actions. So, um, so I think the first thing to understand is that the reason why if you run on a treadmill every day uh, for 20 minutes and you know, at first your heart rate gets up really high and then after a week or two, your heart rate is up less. And then after a month or two, you can barely, you know, nudge that heart rate, you know, it's just really hard to get a decent workout. It's because your brain is always attempting to optimize, to, to, um, to regulate the body systems in the most metabolically efficient way. And that's what it's doing by predicting. It's just 
more energetically efficient to predict and react and to predict and adjust than it is to react. So that's why interval training works so well um, because you're, you're not allowing so-called muscle memory, which is just basically means that your brain is learning a habit, you know, like driving, for example. At the beginning, when you learn to drive, it's really hard. You have to concentrate on everything. And, but then eventually with practice, it becomes kind of second nature and you don't have to think about it at all, actually. Um, to do it really well. Sometimes that gets you in trouble though, right? Sometimes you, you end up making a turn you didn't mean to because you, um, uh, you know, your brain was sort of on autopilot. It was predicting, 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 and it wasn't um, adjusting itself to changes in the environment. And I think that's the key to learning. So an advantage to mixing it up a little with variation is that you, you can think about it sort of as an investment, like, um, you know, adding variability means that you're making it harder for your brain or your brain is making it harder for itself to be efficient. And it's constantly having to find new ways to improve its efficiency, which just means that your repertoire for um, regulation is going to be bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's really what you want. You don't just want to learn one or two routinized um, patterns. You want to have a, a large um, repertoire in part because what the brain is always doing is it's not necessarily like when it, when it assembles information from the past, in order to make a prediction about the immediate future, which then becomes your present. It's not literally always like literally reinstating an exact memory, an exact copy of what happened before. It's doing something called conceptual combination or generativity, which means it's taking bits and pieces of the past and mixing them up to produce something new, a, a novel, um, maybe a novel prediction. Um, maybe there's something you're encountering, a situation that you've never encountered before. But if your brain has the ingredients the, from the past, it can produce um, a, a very decent um, prediction. Um, uh, if it can't, then you're experientially blind and you don't know what to do because you don't even know what you're looking at or what you're hearing or what the situation means. But the, the key here is that your, your brain is always comparing its own predictions to the sense data it's receiving from the body and from the world. And um, those uh, signals from the body and from the world that were unexpected or signals that you know, were expected that don't arise are called prediction errors. And your brain is always learning those prediction errors to enhance its repertoire, enhance its flexibility. And the fancy name for that is learning. That's what learning is. It's increasing the repertoire, all right? Um, you know, you're, you're always building your past in a sense. Every experience you have, everything you do in the present is a way of in cultivating your past in the service of flexible regulation in the future. That is incredibly important, I think, for the work that we're doing, because I, I think you're speaking to 
how, how much it matters to the athlete's performance or to anyone's performance, really, if I'm thinking about that end of the behavior spectrum and, and high performance, to have these different experiences that they can then draw on in novel moments to produce something that looks like a good, good performance. And I, I think one of the things uh, you touched on at the beginning, the sort of myth, maybe it's not a myth, but the, the idea that like just repeating an action over and over again is, is good. Like I think sports historically, and probably still a little bit now, is really over-indexed on that idea as the best way to teach somebody a new skill. And I'm wondering, you're shaking your head no. So, so tell me what no, that no is about. Well, let me give you an example, okay? This is about as close as I could personally come to professional sports, a professional sports event. I had to give a TED talk in front of a thousand people. And it's the kind of thing where you, you actually write a script and you memorize it for three months. And then you give the talk as if it's off the cuff, right? So you're, you have to be super prepared in order to look natural and very automatic. It's just like teaching, actually. That's actually what teaching is, is too. It's always a hard thing for my students to realize. You know, they think, oh, I just stand up and talk, you know, and like, and then, you know, and birds and, you know, chipmunks and flowers fly out of my mouth. And no, I've actually prepared for this. Okay, so, but here's what I did. So I, I memorized this 18 minute talk, word for word. It's not that easy, okay? But then I had to deliver, so I memorized it and again and again and again and again and again, but where did I memorize it? In the quiet of my own home. And so then I get in front of, so I fly to San Francisco and I get in front of the TED people and you know, for the dress rehearsal and there are 20 people in front of me and I can't, honest to God, cannot remember the first, like where did that memory go? It's gone, it's like gone. And I realized, ah, yes, well, Predictions are under the control of the environment. The environment being the sensory signals in the world and in your body. And if that changes, then it's gonna be very hard to, to remember to, to, because that's what predictions are. They're, they're memories, they're the assembly of memories, right? You don't experience yourself as remembering, but that is what's happening. So what did I do? I gave the talk uh, walking outside. I gave the talk jumping in front of the television blaring full, um, you know, loudness. I gave the talk, CNN, full blare, like full. And then I decided, well, that's not disruptive enough. I'm gonna give it, I'm gonna give the talk jumping up and down with Fox News blaring at me. Uh, that would be, you know, that's a little more, uh, a little more evocative for me. I gave the talk in the auditorium as the workers were doing construction, building the, um, the set. And then I gave the talk out loud every time, by the way, the whole thing out loud. I gave the talk as people were filing in, he, lots of noise, people filing into the auditorium, a thousand people, I stood in the corner in the dark and gave the talk out loud as I was listening, listening to all of this chatter and noise. And what was happening basically is that I'm learning, I'm, I'm learning what is signal and what is noise, which signals matter uh, and which ones don't. Because when you're learning something like to hit a ball or to, to, to pass a ball or to you know swing a bat or whatever it is you're learning to do, to you it feels like you're just learning that one 
very select movement, but really your brain is learning an entire ensemble of signals. And so you want to have flexibility in those ensembles to be able to produce the actions fluidly and automatically when you need them. You need to be able to figure out what is signal and what is noise. And all of this is going to happen unconsciously and you know, outside of your awareness. So that's what um, that's what learning is, is, is actually building in flexibility, building in variation to give you the flexibility that you need to be able to deliver an action, whether it's a speech or it's a, a very, you know, complex and sophisticated set of motor movements, um, like a sequence of motor movements, um, uh, very fluidly and 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 effortlessly, actually. Awesome! Really cool preparation. Sounds a little different than most uh, talks I've heard, but I, I like it, and it speaks to the importance of of mixing it up and in, in training. And I think it's a really important concept for people to start to like play with as they're thinking about how they train anyone they're working with. I'm mindful of your time. There's one more concept. I'd love to just touch on a little bit because it really resonated for me too when I read it in the book was the impact of language and how us speaking to one another actually regulates one another as it's sort of unfolding and you even alluded to it in our, in our conversation today. And so to me, it just really pointed to the importance of language and the words we use. I think in the book, you use an example about texting someone. And I know I've, I've since played with that example. And I think people resonate with the idea that like, if you've ever had a partner you're dating and you text them, we need to talk, you know, it tends to cause a whole bunch of reactions without having to see them or hear them or anything. But I'm wondering if you could just kind of elaborate and unpack that a little bit, because I'd love for people to kind of appreciate the real impact of their language on how someone else is, is actually functioning, not just how they feel or how they subjectively say they feel in response, but what might actually be happening for that person. You bet. So I think this is really hard, though, Alex, for people to wrap their heads around, particularly because we live in a culture that prioritizes individual rights and freedoms. And so it feels to us like we should be able to say whatever we want, that there should be freedom of speech and there is freedom of speech. And, and so what I'm about to say, I'm saying to you as a person who believes in the sanctity of freedom of speech, but I'm also a scientist who understands something um, about the consequences of speech, right? So I also think that we have to be, we're free to say, what we want for the most part and to do what we want for the most part, but we're also responsible for the consequences of what we say and do. And that is not something we have a choice over. I mean, you can ignore that, you know, your responsibility, but you are, you are responsible. And so here's the, the, the sort of the, you know, maybe two to five minute story. We are social animals. Humans are social animals. That means that we evolved to um, be socially dependent on each other. What does that mean? Well, it means all kinds of things about the way we raise our children and the, you know, but what it really means is that um, in addition to all those things, it means that we influence each other's nervous systems in a very profound and immediate way, right? So the, 
Um, when I sometimes, you know, refer to the brain's control of the body as budgeting, like if your brain is, you know, running a budget for your body, it's, a, it's an interesting metaphor for allostasis that works pretty well. You know, all metaphors have problems, but this metaphor works pretty well for its, for its, for its intended purpose. And to use that metaphor, I would say, you know, the best thing for a human nervous system, for a human body budget is another human. The worst thing for a human body budget or human nervous system is also another human. Um, and so we can make metaphorically, we can make body budgeting or, or the regulation of someone's body easier or harder for them. Um, you know, social stress within two hours of eating, if you experience social stress where someone um, is, um, you know, criticizing you or is, maybe evaluating you negatively. There's some uncertainty, you know, about their, about the, what they're thinking about you. If um, they are, um, there's, um, you know, you read something that's particularly stressful, um, that adds the equivalent of 104 calories to your meal, which, which means that you're, you're metabolizing your food less efficiently to the tune of 104 calories. And if you add that up over a year, that's almost 11 pounds, right? So if you live in a stressful environment where, where the stress is primarily coming from other people, that adds basically about 11 pounds to your, you know, or like the equivalent of, of you know, that many calories. So why is it like this? It's like this because there are many ways that one human can regulate the nervous system of another human. We do it with gaze. We do it with um, the sounds of our voices. We, you know, so if you look at all other, you know, social species, other animals that are social, they use smell to regulate each other's nervous systems. They use sight, they use sound, they, you know, and we, they use touch. And we use all of those things too, but we also use words. So I can text three little words to a friend who's halfway around the world um, and I can affect her breathing. I can affect her metabolism. I can affect her heart rate just with three words, right? You can read something like the Bible or the Quran or uh, you know, poetry from, you know, uh, the Middle Ages. I mean, you can read something from hundreds or thousands of years ago and um, it can affect you, physically affect you. It can affect your, um, the, your, your body's systems in a very profound way. Um, and that's because words are powerful ways that we regulate each other's nervous systems. And if you look into the brain, you can see that the circuitry that's important for speaking words and understanding words is exactly the same circuitry that is regulating your cardiovascular system and your respiratory system and your immune system and your endocrine system and so on and so forth. So we have socially dependent nervous systems, but we live in a world um, that at least in our culture, we prize and prioritize individual rights and freedoms. And that's a conflict. 
And so while you are free to, you know, legally you're free to do and say anything as long as you don't directly physically threaten the life of someone specifically, <laughs> that's not allowed, right? You can't verbally threaten someone specifically. Um, that's actually, threaten their life actually specifically, that's illegal. That's that's actually assault even i mean assault isn't i was really surprised to learn this that assault isn't just a you know physically harming someone you can't threaten them specifically or threaten their life specifically but you know barring that you're pretty much free to say whatever you want um and you know we sometimes we talk shit with each other right like we 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 you know we talk, what's the what's the phrase we um you know I, the, we, the phrase we use is like we should talk each other you know like you yeah. you work each other up you know and you know, my trainer does this with me sometimes. And I just like raise my eyebrows at it. Like, he's like, that doesn't work with me. Um, but you know, sometimes we do it. I mean, my husband and I do it when we play cards, you know, we're really, really competitive when we play cards and we're trying to psych each other out. And, you know, so I'm not saying that you can never swear. I'm not saying that you can never, you know, you know, do, you know, teasing that's, you know, a little, a little edgy, but I do think that the way that we speak to each other as a general rule matters, it matters a lot. And you are, you are free to speak how you choose, but you are not free from the consequences of speaking that way. And you may think that you are, but you're not. And this is something that I talk about in the book. Um, and I think, you know, it, in, um, I think something that's happened over the past decade or so in certainly in the United States, and I don't know how it is in, in other countries, uh, you know, or my beloved Canada, but um, in the United States, there is this kind of casual brutality in, in everyday discourse that has sort of creeped into the movies and television and um, you know, where making fun of people in the really the most horrible and mean ways becomes like funny with a laugh track. And this is actually really a public health issue. It's, it's, it's actually physically unhealthy to be exposed to that over a long, prolonged period, right? So one instance of casual brutality of speech is not going to harm you. 10 instances is not going to harm you, but, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that builds up over the long term, you know, like a slow drip, <laughs> you know, uh, the slow drip uh, on a pipe is, is not going to do anything right away, but eventually that drip is going to bore a hole through that pipe and, and, and through, you know, the floorboards of your house. So I just think that I'm not saying that we can't criticize each other. I'm not saying that, um, that we always have to be nice to each other, but I don't know, kindness and dignity, treating people with kindness and dignity, even when you have to be critical, even when you disagree, even when you have to give negative feedback is a good investment. Um, it, it's a good investment in other people's health and in your relationship with those people. I cannot think of a better place to end because I think this is such an important concept for helping to make sport a healthier place. Just starting with 
using our language more wisely, being kinder and being aware of the actual impact we have on other people. And that extends well beyond, you know, the one 30 second blow up you have on the sideline or the really sort of unjustified piece of feedback you give after a player does something you don't like, right? There, there are real consequences to that that extend well beyond that moment. And so if we're gonna make some headway in making sport a healthier, more fun, safe place, I think this is a good place to start. Before we let you go, Dr. Lisa feldman Bear, where can people find you and learn more about your work? Sure. Um, I, uh, I have a public website, which is just my name, lisafeldmanbarrett.com. And you can uh, you just Google my name or, or type in lisafeldmanbarrett.com. That will take you to my public website, which has lots of podcasts and lectures and um, articles that I've written for the New York Times and uh, for the Guardian and other newspapers. They're all, all of that material is free. It, it also um, it, it has information about my two books if you're interested in those. There's also an academic website for my lab where all of my scientific papers are also online. There are about 250 of them, but uh, um, you know, those are, um, also available if you're interested, but they are not written for the public. They are written for other scientists. So they're full of jargon and statistics and, you know, anatomy and stuff, and stuff like that. Um, so that's how to, that's how to find me. I'm also, I'm on Twitter and I'm on LinkedIn and, uh, but you know, um, it's always e the best way to get me is to reach me is usually email. Awesome. Well, I know I, I shared this with you when we first met, but your most recent book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, is, is easily one of my all-time favorites and was, I think, the most impactful psychology book I read as a practicing psychologist in the last decade. Um, so I want to be sure to plug that too, and hopefully people will pick that up because I think it's, it's brilliantly done, easy to understand and digest, and, and hugely impactful. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure to have you, and we'll look forward to seeing you again. It's an absolute pleasure as always to chat with you and I'll look forward to the next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unfair Advantage podcast. You can learn more about the work we're doing helping high performers develop their own unfair advantage at our Substack at unfairadv.substack.com.